approaching Leeds final stop service. When leaving us, please ensure to have your luggage and your personal belongings. Thank you for choosing LNER, please mind the gap when leaving the service. Leeds, stop change at Leeds. <laughs> Hello, you're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. My name is John Jacob, and for this episode, I'm in Leeds for the Leeds Piano Competition 2018. Uh, Friday starts with Alyosha Urinich. followed by Anna Genyushenia. After the interval, Mario Herring. And then on Saturday, we start with Xinyuan Wang. And finally, then we hear Eric Liu. That was Paul Lewis you heard there announcing the five soloists competing in the final of the Leeds International Piano Competition on Friday the 14th and Saturday the 15th of September 2018. In this podcast, you'll hear my take, an audience member's take, on on their performances, insights from the public masterclasses held at Leeds for the first time this year, and an exclusive audio tour of the Cobb Collection of Antique Pianos with Alec Cobb and the broadcaster David Owen Norris. For those who don't know, the Leeds International Piano Competition is a big deal. It's spoken about in hallowed terms, and it's often referred to simply as the Leeds, uh, a title which strikes me as, as grand and imposing as the site of any Steinway concert grand to the amateur pianist. The triennial international music competition was started by Dame Fanny Waterman back in 1963, a woman who, at 98 years old, is remarkable, still possesses that indomitable spirit and has amazing hair. She's an amazing force to be in the company of, even if you don't speak to her. The competition history boasts an impressive list of past winners, including Radu Lupu from Romania in 1968, Murray Pariah in 72, uh, and runners-up too, including Mitsuko Achida and Andras Schief in 75, Catherine Stott in 78, and one of this year's judges and masterclass teachers, Lars Vogt, who was a runner-up in 1990. The international reach of the competition, combined with this sort of sense of solidity about it, possibly brought about by the title The Leeds, and the fact that it is a cultural endeavour that has been going for over 50 years outside of London makes this quite an exciting destination to come to, to be completely immersed in something different. Uh, And it is an experience which isn't often afforded in bigger urban environments. It's certainly not something that I've experienced in London, even though there are plenty of locations where it could potentially happen. At 98 years old, Dame Fanny is now Life President and Founder Director Emeritus of the competition. She has handed over the artistic directorship to two people, Paul Lewis, who you heard at the beginning of this sequence, and uh, Paul Lewis, who you heard announcing the finalists, and Adam Gatehouse, who was previously on a Thoroughly Good podcast earlier on in the year. Leeds also this year has developed into something more of an immersive experience, combining second and semi-final rounds with masterclasses and talks and exhibitions, something for audiences and competitors alike. The masterclass sessions have have certainly been a fascinating insight into the mechanics and technique of musicianship. And the talks too, one from Alfred Brendel, has, has been touching and thought-provoking. In addition to all of these... There is, across the city, a piano trail, a series of upright pianos dotted across the city, uh, waiting for members of the public to have a go themselves. 
Some needed coaching and encouraging, and sometimes what that demands is for recognisable faces to lead by example. There are many pianos across the Leeds piano trail and clearly the one in, in Leeds train station was uh, a valuable photo opportunity first and foremost. This featured newsreader Sophie Rayworth, impressionist actor, writer and pianist Alastair McGowan and former MP and game amateur ballroom dancer Ed Balls. Sometimes, as it was the case here, it's a disorientating experience being in the company of amateur pianists. We are, whether we realise it or not, conditioned as audience members or indeed instrumentalists to expect excellence in everything. We have a tendency to judge mere participation as nothing but second best. And if we can't excel, then the vast majority of us gives up. If we don't perceive excellence or we're not promised it, then we have a tendency to ignore what follows. And this moment in Leeds train station turned out to be a leavenly experience, something which I imagine it was designed to be in the first place. For example, to see Ed Balls concentrating on what he was doing whilst members of the public milled around him with mobile phones and watching him recall music by Bach and translate that to the keyboard in front of him kind of transposed him into a relatively everyday context. And watching him... Look on the thoroughly good Twitter feed because there is a video of of all three of them playing in Leeds train station. Watching him and them reminded me that being game and comfortable in yourself to do what brings you pleasure and robust enough not to let society-driven beliefs and expectations dampen your enthusiasm for a pastime is what is most important. That is the starting point. And possibly above all else in this particular experience as someone who plays piano myself I possibly even envied them being able to sit down at the keyboard and play what they know without any music I depend on the manuscript I am not prepared to play anything regardless of whether there is an audience there or not unless I have the music in front of me and they did all of that without any music at all I think that's an important place to start because in a competition like the Leeds, where there is brilliance everywhere, it's valuable to remind yourself what, what the starting point is, what the hurdles are even at the starting point, and that's to do with inner confidence and inner belief. And, and participation is about overcome for me, is about overcoming those uh, initial hurdles, those initial barriers. And when you've when you've reminded yourself of that, then you can go into masterclasses and competition rounds and appreciate the brilliance that is emerging from the platform on a slightly deeper level. to 
the essentially Leeds University Music Department, the Cloth Workers Centenary Hall, sort of grand, yet another grand Victorian uh, construction with a modern extension. It is the kind of music department that I step into and immediately find myself thinking of my own uh, university music education and, and yearning for it. I've come here for a masterclass held by Lars Vod, um, uh, and various students who have participated in the competition who are not finalists. Uh, but masterclasses are a massive indulgence, I think. They are, they, are, they are lovely, lovely things. They're an opportunity to open up the bonnet on a particular work or an artist or a, or a teacher and discover a little bit more about them. Essentially, masterclasses are nothing more than... Uh, they're essentially lessons uh, between teacher and student uh, observed by an audience. The benefit to the student, I, I imagine, is that they get to perform in front of an audience. Uh, and the benefit for the audience is that they get to understand the work more. They get to witness what goes on in terms of the teacher-student relationship they get to witness transformation they get to get to understand some of the intricacies in a particular work there is the opportunity to get into the intricate detail and and witness some forensic attention to technique Suddenly to this incredible emotion at first. 
so in this masterclass what really struck me was that the that Lars was particularly good at highlighting different voices in one particular movement and and sort of unpacked the way in which the piano is carrying multiple different voices at the same time uh he was also really it was really fascinating to see him uh change the character of particular voices on the piano within the space of a bar and and highlight those moments where especially in the beethoven hammerclavier um how actually by following the really specific uh dynamic contrasts and they're, they're dramatic dynamic contrasts you can then create the this personality of a of, a, of an aloof aristocrat and I, I i i found that utterly fascinating sometimes i think also the, the middle sonatas are they bum, bum, dun, dun, like sometimes we hear in german romantic music that they take time and are heavy or so but i think often they're actually this bum, 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 bum. You've got such a development. I don't think it's from pom pom pom. It's too pompous for this kind of music, I think. The surprising thing about the masterclass experience for me is when you have a different teacher in the room, uh, a different person brings a different energy, whether they're sat at the keyboard or whether they're there talking about what they've heard or making suggestions. And Imogen Cooper provides uh, an entirely different experience. Imogen is, um, it strikes me as incredibly sort of humble and respectful, uh, very softly spoken, offers, doesn't so much offer suggestions, she does offer suggestions, she does offer suggestions, but also sort of seeks agreement, uh, seeks consensus, uh, and even though she's softly spoken, she's actually quite challenging, she, she tests boundaries, she pushes back against musicians, um, to see how far they're prepared to sort of go with with her suggestions, whilst at the same time main, maintaining a, a sort of a respectfulness, which is actually really rather charming. That in itself, that that strategy brings uh, a different energy to the masterclass, uh, which in itself impacts on the playing. The really interesting thing for me in in Imogen's master classes was that um, she didn't actually provide that much uh, advice or direction or that many suggestions. It was it was very light touch. It was it was sort of it was seeking input uh, as regards to strategy from from the musician who was at the keyboard, uh, and then sort of using that as a as a stepping stone for introducing a slightly different perspective. It has to be said, certainly with the second pianist, um, his, his performance was stunning right from the word go. And <laughs> the, very, the very weird, weird thing is that when he got to the end of his, his first piece in his masterclass, she basically said, well, there's not really very much I can tell you. <laughs> which, which, as an audience member, sort of makes you go, oh... Oh, why are we here? Why? Why? Why are we doing this?
purchased that you own, that you just sort of found yes, on yeah. various tours? They're picture pianos that I've collected over the last 50 years. What, what's prompted you to collect them? Why would you collect a piano? Because I had a suspicion that when Mozart was composing his piano sonatas, that they probably didn't sound like what we hear today, and they don't. <laughs> that, that's the top-line message you're giving me. Okay. Yes. Uh, please, lead. Please take the lead. I don't know where I'm going. Or oh, Okay, right. <laughs> How do you know, both know each other? When did you first meet? I've known David um, when the p- collection went public. I suppose I met you shortly after that. In yes. 1988, something like that. About 30 years ago, is it? Yes. yes. Wow. Wow. I'm going to put my bag down. Yes. I don't want to touch anything, really. So it's quite an odd, it's an odd experience being in a room with loads of pianos. Yes, but pianos in very different shapes and forms. Um, I'm, going to ask the, I'm going to ask the terrible question first, okay, given yes. that you own the collection. Um, is there a favourite in here? Name a piece of music and I'll tell you the favourite oh, instrument that oh, I have I see for what it. you've done there. You've just batted that. I can't now do that. Um, <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't now think of a piece of piano music. Um, uh, no. <laughs> Bach. Some music by Bach. By Bach? Oh, well, I'd use, a sac- I'd use either the clavichord or the Saxon piano. And that's here? Yes. Right. And then if I was at home, I'd use the Saxon harpsichord as well. Right, okay. Where should we go, where should we go first? I, I, I think you should listen to the clavichord first, because that's yeah. the prototype of all pianos. Right, okay. So okay. the piano started here, really, because it's the first, earliest instrument, and it's very, very old, where the sound is produced by hitting the string with something. Right. Uh, that is directly linked to your finger. So pianos have hammers... This has, uh, do you see, this metal thing on, mounted into the key. So, oh, wow. And like a piano, but it can play soft or light. I can do... So I can produce many different kinds of volume, but unlike a piano or any other keyboard instrument, I can do a vibrato. Oh, wow. So delicate, and uh, can I, can I, can I touch? Oh, it's really delicate. I'm assuming they didn't play chords. Of course, or they did they? Did. I'm really surprised about how quiet it is. Well, that's what everybody says. But if you sit here playing it for a half an hour, <laughs> right, you will forget there was any louder instrument. like music for really tiny people for uh, minuscule people oh well the brain is very minuscule you see <laughs> uh, where did you where did you find this and when I did you it find from it? another collector and it's a saxon clavichord it's the only one in the united kingdom uh, and what was it what was it about it i mean the, the clavichord really... is not anyone coming from 18th century saxony was so it's a rare rarity i mean it's <laughs> Where do we go next? Into the late 18th century Vienna. Okay. Uh, you can find a bit of Mozart somewhere. Or maybe, maybe Mr. Norris will just. You, you have it. Is it Mr. Norris or is it Owen Norris? Is it Mr. I, o- I use Owen Norris. Okay, so I should. Okay, right. makes me think of um, chocolate boxes. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's I'm because of Mozart Kugeln. Is that why? well-known sweetmeat. Yes, Mozart always makes people think of that. Not really. It's, it's no, a very it's about pure sound. sound. Yes. It hasn't got a sort of um, 
coarseness which some other piano sounds have. The Viennese makers are trying to make a very pure sound. One of the peculiar things about this instrument to modern ideas is that the sustaining pedal is operated by the knee. It's got a knee lever which goes up. So Alec was bemusing everybody this morning by saying that one of the difficulties about playing a Mozart piano is that the left knee must do what the right foot is used to wow. doing. Very odd. Which but it's would also mean sound. that actually you'd end up with some quite, quite bad sort of trouble in your leg, wouldn't well, you? Well, you, you could wear thicker trousers, couldn't you? And it's also got a buff stop. Is it? This is... that little bit of leather interposing itself between the hammer and the string. So with the leather in between, it's... And without the leather, it's... Well, this is the piano that Haydn took from London to Vienna. And it stayed in Vienna until the 19... Well, it was discovered in the 1960s. It had been sitting there. And... It was this big piano that encouraged Haydn to write a piece like this. So wow, much that's, bigger sound. that's amazing. Yes. And the other interesting thing about this piano is that you can play on all three strings for each note, or you can cut it down to two strings. There's a pedal here that pushes the keyboard and therefore the hammers uh-huh. to one side. So the hammer only plays two strings per note. So it's softer. Or you can push it all the way to one string. Which is a sort of magic sound. This is by Anton Walter, who made a piano for Mozart. He really... Spanned the, the generations because is the third pedal from the left. Yes, there are four pedals. One of the pedals shifts the piano so that you can go down to one string. This one is a buff. Is that one a buff? Uh, no, the second one is Janissary, but it's not quite. Oh, it's not adjusted. Well, it should be going boom ching boom ching as if it was a. Um, uh, uh, press the second pedal. It's not quite engaging. It gives you a, a, the lavatory paper effect. Yes. Comb and lavatory paper. <laughs> the comb and lavatory paper. Delightful it gives it a buzz. Okay. And then there's a sustaining pedal, and then this last one... Oh, wow. ..is the mute thing. And this is the sort of piano for which Schubert would have written... Steinways, 1864. So just built 15 years after this player, which is Chopin's. Wow. Okay. So Chopin's gone a long way from this. steel supports and it feels more I mean I feel I feel okay about touching it I don't feel as though if I, if I lean on it it's going to fall over not that I'm suggesting that those will but do, do you know what I mean they feel more they feel stronger because of it it's got fine sturdy legs certainly <laughs> it's um, this is more modern looking and sounding than the piano so far but this was Chopin's own play out Rounder. 
But then, as Alec was saying, Steinways came along Mm -hmm. and the full metal frame, the cast iron frame, had been invented in North America because of the terrible American winters, I think, uh, in 1839 in Boston. And Steinways took that over. So if you come and look at this very early Steinway, which is the 1859 patent, though this actual model was 1864, you see that it's got lots of metal. That's big. Colossal plates of metal here and bars of metal to hold it firm. And it still doesn't sound like a modern piano, Alec, does it? No, uh, it's got qualities of 19th century in it, but it's revolutionary qualities. If we play... It's a really, really big sound. But in this room in Leeds, for just these few days, we've got the possibility of comparing that on a Steinway, albeit a Steinway that's 150, 160 years old, uh, and playing it on the piano that Chopin might have played Uh, it on. Are you going to do that now, sir? Excellent. (laughs) It's like you've planned all of this. So he would have written that, maybe, maybe he would have written that on a piano like this. Uh, what date is this piece? Um, Opus 40, so probably he didn't write it on this piece, but he may well have played it, on, it the, eight, on this piano. 1840, about 1830s? Yes. I, I don't know if it's, it's a short answer. I'm it's weirdly, it, it sounds weirdly muffled. Well, I'm not saying it's wrong. No. <laughs> Obviously, there's well, no such thing as wrong, but it sounds weirdly muffled. But that's take a, this nocturne... It was composed in 1830, so he was in Vienna in 1830, and he actually would have composed it on a graph piano. Like that? Like this. So, in fact, the proper piano for this, and in the period piano Chopin composition they're doing at the moment, they are allowed to perform on Viennese pianos if they want to. I'm fascinated by how actually hearing it on that instrument completely changes the character of the piece that I know. Uh, it ma- it al- almost makes it sound quite twee and, 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 and hugely nostalgic. Well, it's pretty nice on this, but you may also think it's twee. <laughs> a little bit like you're having to work very hard to get the melody out but again that's just based on what I hear not necessarily experience of it I'm sure you think it just not. falls out of the piano. Uh, there's the something piano. else that comes to mind actually hearing hearing that on uh, older instruments. I'm uh, immediately think of things like competitions where people are being judged for uh, or assessed rather on on how they're articulating something, which actually is on an instrument which the music wasn't originally 
written for. Do, do you see what I mean? That it, mm. it must it must make it for for well, people who I love think, original instruments. Well, the Chopin Institute is doing a competition as we stand here on on period instruments in, in Warsaw. Warsaw. They're performing on. Uh, they have a choice of a Pleyel or an Erard of the 1840s to give to perform their competition. Pieces. So a competition for authentic performance, presumably. Well, it's it's for Chopin, but playing it on the sort of piano. So it's exactly an answer to your observation that people are performing and competing and of having being assessed on an instrument that's nothing like the one mm. that the composer knew. Now they're doing it on an instrument that like the ones the composer knew, and it just it does tailor the performance hugely. The interesting thing, I think, is that pianists all over the world are gradually becoming more and more aware of early instruments. I think it's a wonderful breakthrough that the Leeds competition has asked the Cobb Collection to come and bring these pianos. Uh, these are particularly interesting pianos because they belong to famous people that we have heard of and that are the, you know, Beethoven, Haydn, Bach, there's a piano that uh, Johann Christian Bach played still back in Surrey. I mean, the collection is full of instruments. Elgar's piano, Mahler's piano, things like that. But besides these famous composers' instruments, there are, one can find old pianos and so on, and people are seeking them out and restoring them. And Alec Cobb has been, of course, such a pioneer in, in doing that. I think that uh, before another 20 years are... Uh, past, what with Daniel Barenboim being interested in the, the sorts of sounds that older pianos made, that people will play pianos with much more understanding. It's, it's, it's like a vintage car, isn't it? People love vintage cars, and what they realise very easily with, with vintage cars is that vintage cars were all different, and these days cars are all the same. And uh, pianos, just like that, all these early pianos were different. Even pianos of the same age we've seen are very, very different. But will they? Will will the audience catch up? I can see how how practitioners will will want to sort of explore um, period instruments in that way. I totally get that. But I'm wondering whether the audience will have the same appetite as they have with uh, historically informed and authentic performance in terms of orchestras. Do, do you see what I mean? Do you yeah. think they will catch up eventually? Uh, well, I think they... If they're not already there. They're, they're, no, they're, they're, they're not uh, all already there. <laughs> and <laughs> there will we're, certainly... We're some work on, There will on the certainly be people always who will prefer the sound of the most modern Steinway to any other instrument, and that's fine. That's their, that's their preference, and uh, th- there are preferences in these things. What's good is if people can open their ears to... Not so much only the different sounds of the piano uh, in previous centuries, but the different ways those sounds make you play. That's the interesting thing, because you can still play, to some extent, in that old-fashioned way, as it were, on a modern instrument. I'm not crusading... Uh, no, go for, on. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not crusading for everybody to play old pianos. What I'm crusading for is for pianists to be aware of the history of their own instrument. One of the uh, unexpected things that has arisen from coming to Leeds for the past few days has been the opportunity to immerse myself in many more aspects of piano playing and music than I would otherwise do going to a concert or listening to a concert on the radio. Uh, And the exhibition with Alec Cobb and David Owen Norris is a case in point. The masterclasses and the exhibition sort of led me to conclude that uh, pianists and pianos are not sort of mysterious, gilded things. Um, We think of performances in very romantic terms. We depict pianists and pianos in in very sort of romantic contexts, even if we don't realise that we do it. Uh, But in actual fact... Uh, the piano is a sound-producing machine, and the person who operates the machine is having to do battle with their own, with their own wits, their own ability, their own strength, their own weakness, and and all of the challenges presented by the instrument, um, depending on when it was made and what it was made from. Uh, and that's really sort of deepened my appreciation for for the art form and for the instrument. And that made listening to both sets of finals an incredibly rewarding experience. You're going to hear now from uh, the reports that I captured after the first final and 
after the second one before the announcement of the winner was made. Fantastic acoustic for Mozart, it strikes me. Uh, it's very crisp and it's very clear. It's a bit like stepping into um, a room with unexpectedly good air conditioning that you didn't realise you needed. It's, it's quite a special space to be in. I didn't really get invested in Mozart, I have to say. It was gorgeous, I love it, but I didn't really get invested in it. And this was despite some, at the risk of sounding nerdy, some really fantastic rubatos, and in particular one in the first movement, where it just felt like the musical equivalent of a beautifully hand-drawn right angle, all done in one stroke. That's the only way I can describe it. It was, it made me tingle a little. I just didn't invest in it. I didn't really, I didn't really buy it. I'm sorry, I didn't really buy it. However, Anna, uh, with Prokofiev's third piano concerto, entirely different style of performance. space on the platform but she really owned it uh, very strong very assertive um, wasn't going to take any nonsense if, if you know what I mean uh, and that was that was really joyous to see and it got me thinking about to what extent a concerto's character is inflicted on the soloist to what extent does the soloist take on the character of the work uh, or to what extent does the, does the soloist impose their character on the work, either knowingly or unknowingly. I got quite into thinking about that, as you can tell. I really, really enjoyed the Prokofiev. I'm just, I just wasn't quite so convinced about the Mozart. I found that I've shifted my allegiance <laughs> to Mario. Uh, he's 28 from Germany and he is stunning. It was a breathtaking performance. I utterly loved it. Um, if one can utterly love something. Uh, why did I love it? I loved it because he was so generous and collaborative and even though he wasn't playing right at the beginning he was, during the orchestral introduction, he was sort of swinging around and he was really engaging with the, with the orchestra playing. And I loved that. As an audience member, I kind of thought, actually, he's really adorable. He's endearing. And now when he starts to play, I'm going to love him even more. I mean, I didn't consciously think that at the time. But actually, it's, it's an interesting effect that something like that has. Uh, on your senses and your and your expectation as an audience member. First movement was incredibly taut and fun and, and just crisp and precise and the runs were so smooth and and oh 
ravishing to listen to. Second movement, also gorgeous. The only thing I'm gonna, the only thing I'm gonna pick out at the second movement is there was this one moment, this one moment where the chord was in the piano was just placed really carefully, and it all sounded utterly gorgeous. And I wanted, in that moment, I wanted that moment to go on forever. Uh, that is a special live performance experience. Uh, and then the third movement, um, zippy, really zippy, nimble, agile, and fun, and joyous, and quite light. I was expecting Beethoven to be heavy, but it was quite light. And I thought it was fantastic. I think he's an amazing musician, and, and he owns his place in a way that other musicians haven't and he looks right in that space and he clearly enjoys being in that space and that's that is also for me part of the performance Uh, so here are the things that, that came up for me during the Schumann. Uh, it's, I thought it was kind of splashy in places. Um, it's also quite a punishing work because it's terribly pleasant. It's lovely to listen to, but I wonder whether it's actually quite difficult to do something with. Um, uh, I sort of think that I heard one or two on the wrong notes. Um, but I did think the strings were incredibly silvery and there were some lovely colours that emerged from the platform. Uh, so I enjoyed it in that way. The second movement was exquisite. There were some pianissimos in there which really took my breath away. And I loved it for that. I think that was probably where things started hotting up for me. Um, it worked. It just... And it did grab me. It did grab my attention, especially in the second movement. But unfortunately, I think he was overshadowed by Eric Lutz. bemused looking. He has enormous style at the keyboard. It's incredibly unfussy. It's very precise and it has enormous grace. Enormous grace? Can we say that? Does that work? Um, and, and certainly in the first movement, well no, throughout it actually, there was, he has this ability to be quite elastic in the phrases so that it will speed up towards the top of the melody and then ever so slightly slow down and then speed up again. Uh, and to be able to do that, to be able to pull that off with an orchestra after essentially, I assume, one rehearsal. Um, at the age of 20, oh, um, 
contender in the contender towards the end of the first movement. Utterly breathtaking. It was breathtaking. He is an amazing performer, a remarkable young man, and it was. I just stopped writing notes at that point. I was completely blown away. He's an amazing, amazing performer, and I'm in no doubt that he will win. And if he doesn't, then I'm going to be quite miserable. turn out the way I want them to turn out. Uh, it has been an absolute joy to be in Leeds. It's been a joy to hear uh, so many fantastic pianists and be introduced to a whole range of new repertoire. I have loved every single minute of it uh, and with that in mind I have uh, enormous thanks to pass on to the Leeds International Piano Competition and the University of Leeds for putting me up. Please rate, like and share the Thoroughly Good Classical Music podcast. Uh, it's available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. If you'd like to get in touch, tweet me at Thoroughly Good. Uh, like the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or you can email me john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me. Thank you very much for listening.